Episode 135. Staying with the NBSAE. Shit and Swithin Bank began employing the boring machine, which is a very interesting piece of equipment, to probe the nature of the glacial ice on which Mordheim sat. Trialled in Sweden and largely unsatisfactory there, the two glaciologists gradually worked out the bugs in the system and started the first ice coring project in Antarctic history. The grotto in which they established the trial drill didn't ventilate well and the genset powering the borer occasionally caused mild carbon monoxide poisoning, but the method proved sound. A drill string broke off in the bore after the pair reached 65 metres, a record depth in Antarctica. A broken drill string remains a nightmare for drilling operations to this day. In this instance, it forced a shift to a new grotto and starting over, but the method grew more finessed with each additional day of experience. Swithenbank placed himself firmly in the doghouse by dropping a pipe wrench down a newly drilled 8 metre hole. He pulled himself and the tool out of trouble. TLP, this is Dangerfield, go ahead. Sausage received. Oh, full of sausage. It's good. <clears throat> he pulled himself and the tool out of trouble by fashioning an electrode magnet from a steel bar, copper wire, and a weasel battery. Cards and chess, while available, received little attention as the NBSAE members found a particular fascination for the board game Ludo, with championship rounds playing out in Snobby's cubicle. Yeva forbade record players, concerned about past musical monotony wearing some winter's nerves thin while buttressing those of others. Better to do without and find other paths to equanimity, he figured, though Qua and Wilson fashioned a primitive gramophone on Midwinter's Eve to play the one recording that made it uphill through the unload. The intense pace and reported equanimity make Mordheim stand out, not just in the sense of an Antarctic presence, but in terms of international endeavour generally. If the huts didn't drip and the passageways didn't require constant shovel work to maintain surface in the face of the slow but inexorable rise of the drift snow burying the village, it might call to me as the most appealing Antarctic presence I've recounted to date. At 71 degrees south, Mordheim saw the last of the sun for that winter on the 19th of May. The long dark passed largely uneventfully. Robin got caustic soda in his eyes while clearing slag out of the hydrogen generator, but Dr. Wilson applied boric acid and prevented permanent damage. The chimney drifted over, causing ventilation problems and, in one instance, an explosion in a flue that knocked Volta shit off his feet. A July discussion of the weasel's fuel consumption saw Robin propose a 3,500km traverse to the Bay of Wales during the third NBSAE Austral summer, measuring ice sheet thickness using seismic sonar throughout the transect. The idea seemed preposterous to all hands, at first, but gradually caught imaginations up until a full cohort of volunteers saw Yeva send the proposal north. Committees in all three NBSAE nations shot the idea down as placing too great a strain on the available maritime resources. Another proposal, this time by Schitt, to take a party to the Voltart Massif, 
photographs of which first led Professor Ullman to speculate on Antarctic glacial recession, also met with committee nixing because it took too many weasels away from existing expedition seismic survey goals. A hurricane-force blizzard caught Fred Roots while en route back from the magnetic igloo, and he spent a fraught hour face down on the snow's surface, slowly cutting a horizontal staircase, feeling ahead in the blinding maelstrom with his spade to find the next marker pole, before cutting more footholds. Roots' near miss inspired the Mordheim light, a hundred-watt lamp set atop a tall post to act as a beacon to anyone caught in similar circumstances. Costaliliquist lost his way during a round of meteorological observations, unable to see even the beacon. He lay down to wait for the wind to drop enough to regain his bearings, and found he only lay a few metres away from the passageway entrance. The only time a search party went out in adverse weather was when Leslie Quire didn't return from a round of weather obs. The roped-in rescue party found him sitting on the snow about 50 yards away, patiently waiting for the situation to resolve in the firm knowledge that to flail about in the blizzard was to die. Nerves of fucking steel. I hope I have that presence of mind and strength of will if I ever find myself lost in the blind. Even still, conditions posed challenges at 71 degrees south, and I quote Swithinbank extensively to outline how even the simple task of using theodolites takes on Herculean proportions at very low temperatures. Quote, Sometimes I drove a weasel to the stakes, but in cold weather it was often difficult to start. The penalty for flattening the battery was to lug it into the generator shed for recharging. If I spilled a few drops of acid on my windproof, holes appeared in it some days later. At other times I skied to the stakes, but, carrying a heavy tripod and theodolite, I would arrive in a sweat. Damp clothes cool the body faster than dry clothes, so I paid a price for that, too. Early in the winter, in twilight, I could see the stakes through the telescope of the theodolite. Later on, it was pitch dark, and I had to hang hurricane lamps on stakes before sighting to them. This involved travelling long distances before surveying, and again, afterwards, to bring in the hurricane lamps. For observing, I could not use a bulky reindeer parker because, if it so much as touched the tripod, I would have to re-level the instrument. So I dressed in many layers of sweaters and a windproof anorak. The worst problem was keeping my fingers from seizing up. The tangent screws of the theodolite were metallic and small, so thick gloves were out of the question. My diary for 27th May reports, impossible to keep warm with woolen mitts, four thicknesses of silk gloves and catskin gloves. My breath froze on the eyepiece of the telescope, obscuring the view. I tried to remove the ice with a handkerchief, but that threw the instrument off level. Re-leveling took several minutes. I attempted to exhale sideways. That worked until a puff of breeze blew my breath back. When all was ready, I searched through the telescope for the distant hurricane lamp. When I found it, the inverted image of the lamp was often dancing from side to side of the crosshairs. There was commonly a temperature inversion, with cold air hugging the snow surface and warmer air above it. The slightest breeze could ruffle the layers and lead to near-mirage refraction. Despite all the difficulties, the many long hours that I spent alone away from the base were some of the happiest I can remember. I was out of range of any sound from Mordheim, in total silence, 
at peace in the wilderness and at peace with the world. Often the great arc of sky above was filled with a thousand twinkling stars, brighter than anything I have seen in lower latitudes. On some days I was serenaded by the aurora with its multicoloured curtains, dancing, shimmering, alive, grander than anything I could have imagined. From time to time, ripples flowed from one end of the curtain to the other, some fast and some lazily. The symphony in the sky, I felt, was laid on for me. It would be an insult to leave before the final bars. But of all the sensations that came to me during those long hours alone, it was the silence that moved me most. Silence was the spirit of the place. End quote. By June, the Rawan hut lay under such deep drifts that the snow interrupted the radio signals between balloon payload and receiver. An intensive digging project made a ramp up which the hut traversed back to the shelf surface, though the gradual process of drifting over started again immediately. Sledging preparations involved the construction of Nansen model sledges, with modern plastic laminate skins on the runners to further decrease friction and sewing lampwick harnesses. Raw, Roots, Reese, Shit and Mellowy each received responsibility for a team of dogs and fine-tuned their driving in local derbies. Peter Mellowy initially preferred a centre trace arrangement, but the British team members stuck to working with their animals in a fan array, as Reese and Robin learnt from their time among the Fids. Later, Mellowy adopted an extended fan, and recent roots used centre trace, and raw applied tandem traces. No two drivers used the same commands, and the dogs learnt to drive their drivers more than the other way around, as is often reported the case with huskies. The sun made its first spring appearance on July 26th. Yeva set a deadline, sledging parties to be ready by the 15th of September. Toward the end of August, Robin began making seismic shots to measure the depth of the ice shelf and the underlying water. He, Swithenbank and Mellaby used a weasel to traverse the ice shelf, setting off the explosive charges and measuring the returns with an array of six seismometers spaced 10 metres apart in preparation for an inland traverse applying the same seismic sonar mode. Satisfied everything worked in their favour, the four men headed inland with a weasel and a dog team on the 13th of September. Provisional measurements mapped a transect of ice profiles along their track, and theodolite work demonstrated the ice shelf on which Mordheim sat rose and fell as much as three feet on the tide, the hinging transition area between shelf and continent offering difficult crossings for the weasel. This first outing demonstrated the weasel fuel consumption as far higher than estimated, forcing a revision of trail plans. Dog teams reconnoitred and staked out all outward paths to minimise backtracking with the main loads towed behind the machines. A depot party departed and laid a major cache, the departure depot, 45 miles inland from Mordheim using two weasels during a non-stop 23-hour operation. Nala Ekstrom worked hard to keep the machines operating during some of the lowest temperatures anyone ever called on weasels to operate in ironing out problems as they went, though the mechanic's best efforts never afforded speeds greater than four miles an hour. Quoting Fred Roots, 
There are many fascinating problems in connection with living in the polar regions and carrying on any kind of activity there. Journeys and transport are among the most interesting of those problems. Each of the various methods from man-hauled sledges to planes has proved its own value in specific conditions, although the results are not always equally conclusive. But there has been much discussion on the advantages of using snow-going motor vehicles rather than dog sledges, when it is a question of the most efficient form of transport over moderately long distances. Once an expedition is actually within its sphere of operation, such discussions may, in general, be reduced to the following points the task to be accomplished, and the means at one's disposal for its accomplishment. So many circumstances have to play their part. Time, maintenance of spare radiators for the weasels, the number of bitches out of action in the maternity ward, will more often than not prove to be just as important for journeys of all kinds as the theoretical efficiency of dog food versus gasoline. It is my personal conviction that exploration in the South as in the North, ought to be based, to the greatest possible extent, on all the aids that progress makes available and finances will allow. Obviously, aircraft ought to be used if one can afford it. The larger the planes, the better. Obviously too, mechanical transport should be employed, weasels or tractors. Yet many a year will certainly pass before sledge dogs have ceased to play their part in polar exploration. The question of dog food versus gasoline therefore rests for the present more on an estimate of both and than one of either or. Finance is a final argument here, as elsewhere and always. I hardly dare to think, for instance, how much more we could have accomplished if only we had had aircraft at our disposal at Mordheim. And yet, I love to see the Danish three-master Gustav Holm in the Greenland pack ice with her splendid yards and sails with her prehistoric bow and a picturesque bowsprit. The old sailing vessels with auxiliary engine do, after all, represent one of the hardiest chapters in the history of polar exploration. They are picturesque to look at, but I prefer to see them at a distance. Our motor-driven, moccasin-shaped arctic ships with a protective casing of oak or other hardwoods represent the next stage of development. The steel ship Norsell leads the way to the near future when the seal is exterminated and arctic whaling dies out. So too with the polar dog. One day, not too far hence, the first polar expedition will set out with aircraft and mechanised transport only. The next thing will be expeditions without vehicles, with nothing but aircraft. I thank my maker that I shall not live to see the day when it will no longer be a question of dog food versus gasoline, but of gasoline versus atomic power. Yet I have to envy my great-grandson he was going to take part in the first expedition to the moon, and if he fails to do so, I shall haunt and torment him all through his nights with a dog team. End quote. The first major sledging operation kicked off on the 5th of October. Walter Schitt led Roots, Reese, and Mellaby with three dog teams. Robin and Roar boosted them along beyond the departure depot with a fourth dog team transporting dog food as far as a single sledge load of materials could afford. Just before turning back, the pair visited Forsterfjell Nunatak, becoming the first people to set foot on solid ground in the region, before returning to Mordheim on the 23rd. 
Shit's party returned on the 15th of November, having mapped a path for the weasels to follow in order to establish advanced base, a large depot from which dog teams might make the furthest excursions that season. Originally intending on laying the depot at the regular Ket Massif, mountains about 200 nautical miles away according to the Dornier Wild Cruise of the Schwabenland a decade earlier, Schitt's team found the German cartography placed the mountains 62 miles further east than the NBSAE ground truth them as. The party pressed on, eventually laying the depot at the newly discovered Pyramiden, a pyramid-shaped rock structure not featured in any of the German cartography. The first long-distance foray gave insights on vehicle, cooker and human fuel consumption that informed subsequent efforts. Primus fuel in particular needed a boost if the tent occupants wanted to heat their tents a little in addition to melting water and cooking food, and the manned food portions needed bulking up in order to account for any storm-related delays. On reaching the departure depot, the team, hangry after operating on short rations for several days, fell upon the smoked ham, bread, butter and cheese awaiting them, and gorged themselves. The lightweight hand-cranked radios didn't work out on the trail, though Schitt's party couldn't identify if the equipment or atmospheric conditions lay behind the failure to communicate. On the 20th, three weasels, led by Fred Roots and carrying Ekstrom, Mellaby, Swithenbank, Reese, and Robin, set out to follow the newly flagged route to the Pyramidon advance base. Word came through that Sverdrup would sail south aboard the Norsell, once again captained by Guttorm Jakobsen and engineered by Torgil Jakobsen. Brian Roberts, ornithologist during John Rymill's BGLE, would sail as the British Committee representative. Phil Law, by then fully committed to the OIC role within Inari, selected physicist John Gelbart, veteran of the first winter party at Heard Island, see episode 130, to represent Australian interests aboard the Norsell. Norwegian Bjorn Lawrenson headed south to replace John Snarby, allowing the cook to head home a year after accepting his Mordheim berth after just half an hour's cogitation. The Norwegian backcountry airline, Vitteros Flyvesselskap, provided a C5 Polar, a native airframe very close in role and shape to the Nordoyan Norseman, though slightly smaller in each dimension, for aerial survey work over the plateau and a smaller Danish-built KZ-3 for scouting operations. Vidaro Airlines captain Carl Fries Bastard led the aviation contingent, supported by first pilot Anders Jakobsen and mechanics J. Jensen and W. Andreasen, and Sigvard Kjellberg working the survey cameras. The Swedish Air Force nominated Reinhold von Essen to sail as an observer. Rising spring temperatures helped identify the remaining holes in the accommodations, as meltwater began a gentle rain over the Mordheim indoors. Shoveling the drift snow off the roofs and papering over the gaps with tarred paper helped stem the dripping and established new ventilation tunnels in one sweep. Where previously dry neve formed self-supporting structures above the passage roofs, the wet and slumping snow pressed down necessitating extensive shoring up everywhere other than the prefabricated buildings. 
The Weasel Traverse Party returned on the 28th of November, having successfully laid the largest depot and seismically mapped a landscape of fjords beneath the 4,000 foot deep plateau their path took them over. During the traverse, Ekstrom demonstrated a simpatico relationship with the weasels, identifying faulty fuel pumps by ear and determining when tracks grew too slack by feeling the way the machines rode over the landscape through the seat of his pants. He took responsibility for driving the worst performing machine at any given time, spending most of his days in one with a faulty gearbox, nursing the best from his charges at every stage. The preceding dog sledge party missed a couple of crevasse fields the latter train sent skiers into in order to identify the best possible course by probing and digging. Charles Swithenbank rigged a remote control system for driving a weasel across a snow bridge, with ropes and pulleys pulling him along on his skis a safe distance behind his machine. He didn't rig the system as a failsafe, and the machine headed off on its own when the glaciologist fell on his face and let go the reins, though even at full noise, the machine wasn't likely to outpace him in a short sprint, and he caught it back up. Here's some fine prose from Fred Roots to capture the mood and mode of the journey. Quote, the horizon ahead suddenly shifted from a nearby skyline of smooth, rounded snow to a spacious panorama of mountain peaks, rock ridges and blocky, ice-capped massifs. Few mountain groups can have a more dramatic disclosure than the Queen Maudland Mountains when approached from the northwest. A featureless landscape is replaced, all in a moment, by a vista of great dark massifs, sharp ridges, ice-topped tables and domes, rocky horns and clusters of angular and rounded nun attacks. In places, the ice sheet lies between and around these mountains as impassively as a frozen lake. In other places, it swells and twists past rock outcrops, exposing glittering patches of bare, blue, crevasse-seamed ice. In still others, it leaps high up on the flanks of the mountains like gigantic sea breakers congealed in mid-splash." The weasels performed better than a less-than-hardy endorsement from Paul Emil Victor's Greenland expedition led anyone to expect, so a further seven tons went out to the Pyramidon depot. Roots led, Ekstrom managed the machinery, Swithenbank worked the radio, and Snarby got an opportunity to experience trail life while Yeva stood in for him in the Mortheim galley. Robin and Lilliquist hitched a ride for the first half of the outward trip to make fine-scale seismic measurements, while the others laid the stores at the depot site. The now well-known trail offered no problems, and the entire party returned to Mordheim after a four-day round trip. The Weasel team adopted the night travel mode to allow better snow conditions for the runners, this leading to lower fuel consumption per mile travelled, though in open cockpit vehicles it also led to the occupants chilling down by the hour. They took to heating tins of food and a cocoa pot atop the exhaust manifold so they could enjoy a warming snack or beverage without bringing the party to a halt. Ekstrom pronounced all three weasel engines in need of complete overhaul and the tracks in need of replacing. Hard mechanical yards lay ahead as the first step toward the second unloading of the Norcell. A radio message went out to Sverdrup. Keep the weasel spares close to the top of the stores carried south. Mortheim began sharing meteorological forecasts with the Torshavdi, 
and other factory vessels operating in that quadrant of the Southern Ocean. The ships, in turn, supplied Met-Obs by which Schumacher and Lilliquest finessed their forecasts. Through December, Snarby hunted up 70 seals for dog food, all the while keeping an eye on the horizon, seeking a glimpse of his ride home. Fred Roots took the trail party candidates out for some crevasse rescue training, and the glaciologists finished up their local stake measurements. Two sledge parties departed. The glaciological team comprised Shit, Dr. Wilson, Swithenbank and Mellaby, with two ten-dog teams. They made height measurements at the mile marker bamboo stakes to assess deposition or ablation on the outward leg to advance base. As with many previous trail parties, they switched to night sledging for the lower temperatures and better surfaces for the sledge runners. The dark blue Scott Polar Pyramids absorbed so much heat on clear days that the team often found themselves sleeping through midday atop their sleeping bags and nearly naked. The geological and surveying party comprised Roots, Raw, Robin and Reese. The R party drove two 10-dog sledges, one 7-dog team and a miniature sledge pulled by the elderly bitch Patches and two young male dogs, this last being Robin's conveyance which he drove under the burgee of the Royal Harwich Yacht Club. Quoting John Yaver. The three main teams struggled off rather laboriously Robbie shouted mush and whizzed off like a bullet in absolutely perfect style. Then swinging wide, he hobbled over the drifts, towed by his miniature team. Les yelled after him in astonishment, Hey you old submariner, you're flying! Why don't you join the Air Force? Robbie heard, answered, did nothing. He was far too much taken up with keeping on his legs. Gosh, howled Les, there goes the Navy, over the waves! Over the waves of snow, long live Australia, land of the brave. And Nully fell on his knees and laughed till he cried. Patches, he gasped, look at her, she's actually running. Harness an old lady and a pair of lads in front of a sledge and see what happens. Remember me to the South Pole, Robbie. End quote. Fred Roots comments in his report, Journeys of the Topographical Geological Party, one conclusion at least could be drawn. The fan hitch was undeniably superior for entangling spectators. One driver found his whip to be more effective in controlling the bystanders than his team. When the air cleared, Reese was standing forlornly, out of breath, watching his team and sledge disappear toward the advanced base, doggedly determined to get on with the fieldwork, driver or no. Roots was hanging on grimly to a rocketing sledge that was not noticeably hampered by an iron-shod brake dug deep into the snow, and the inert forms of two puppies who, unable to maintain the pace, were being dragged on their sides. Both sledging parties converged on the large depot 90 miles out of Mordheim on Christmas Eve, replenishing their vittles but parting ways immediately, celebrating Christmas on the trail independently with small treats and good cheer. Always alert to the threat of carbon monoxide poisoning, Yeva kept everyone on task clearing ventilators and identifying dead spaces in the accommodations, but even conscientious monitoring of airflow couldn't keep up with the f arising from the near constant genset use in an increasingly troglodytic situation.
The permanent residents of Mordheim exhibited malaise and lethargy more so than regular trail participants, heightening Yeva's paranoia about the insidious threat posed by the odorless toxin. On the 6th of January, footsteps on the Mordheim roof, hammering on a chimney, and Norse shouting announced the arrival of the Norsell. Upward digging commenced to make an entrance through the accumulation of a week's worth of blizzard drift. Brian Roberts, carrying a crate of beer, got stuck in this steep driveway entrance, but his gift prompted further digging to clear the blockage. After a year with only 14 other faces and a month with only seven, the Mordheim contingent struggled to process the presence of a large number of garrulous visitors, but the beer helped the two parties find a common frequency. Sverdrup, High Latitudes campaigner from way back, hauled away his Norsell companions to give the Mordheim residents time to digest their arrival, the mail, and the novel foods they brought. Have you ever considered a potato a novelty? The new arrivals brought the 1951 round of the crud with them, the Mordheim residents going down with bouts of dysentery and head colds novel to their out-of-the-loop immune systems. Sverdrup approved of all Yeva and his team achieved in their first year on site, both in terms of the Mordheim appointments and the field program. Art film company photographer Stig Hallgren documented the NBSAE for home audiences. The Norwegian airframes carried less state-of-the-art navigation equipment than the RAF Osters the previous summer, and the weather barely gave the aviators a let-up, but Fris, Bastard and Jakobsen managed to make two flights to advance base in the C-5. Fuel staged there in the first allowed a flight further south as an extension of the second, leading to the discovery of a mountain range beyond the Kralberg Mountains sighted by the Nazi flights a decade earlier. The smaller KZ-3 made flights over the local ice shelf, more hovers given the winds the pilots took on in their small and slow machine. On the 29th of January, Yeva tasked Fries Bastard with a flight over Cap Norvegia. Costa Lindquist flew in the right seat to make glacial observations in lieu of any of the NBSAE's actual glaciologists who were still out on the trail. The C-5 crashed during its landing, the wingtip hitting the snow and bringing the aircraft to a crunchy, stalled-out halt. The pilot received some scratches and bruises. The meteorologist came away badly concussed. The C-5 comprised scrap metal. With his own doctor off base, Yeva consulted with the medico aboard the Torshavdi over the radio. Liljequist's condition didn't indicate evacuation, but Yeva spent several days by his friend's bed telling stories and sharing the beer ration to allay the meteorologist's addled post-accident dread. Fris Bastard gifted Mordheim that season's plane crate, which became a larger weasel workshop, sheltering Ekstrom for the weather in his never-ending work keeping the machinery working. The Norsell departed once Yeva felt reassured Lilliquist was on the mend on the 30th of January. In addition to swapping out Bjarn Lawrenson for John Snarby, the ship left physicist John Gelbart and photographer Stig Holgren at Mordheim, the latter being a last-minute appointment based on a need for another strong back and adaptable mind. The accustomed routine fell back into place, work distracting all minds from the sense of abandonment 
that winterers often recount as the last tangible contact with the outside world departs northward. Ventilator shafts and access drives needed constant maintenance. Radio skids went out, whether or not the trail parties responded. It later turned out the field teams received more news about Mordheim from Radio Norway than they did from Rogstad's transmissions. Ekstrom, aided by a new spare pair of hands, Holgren, overhauled the generators with the newly arrived parts and began in on reviving the weasels, all knocked out of working order in the strain of the summer unload and runway maintenance tasks. Lawrenson demonstrated himself a worthy successor to John Snarby by turning out skewers a la Tarmogen in cream sauce to rapturous reception from colleagues previously sceptical on the gastronomic merit of the scavengers. Out on the trail, the glaciological party fell into a regular rhythm of sledging, establishing camp, digging a two-metre snow pit for shit's density profile measurements, measuring positions and heights of stakes, and making rounds of angles for Roa to add to his survey board. Swithenbank adds this observation. Quote, Spanning up the dogs, we realised that more than 15 months had elapsed since any of them had touched bare ground. So to amuse them, we presented each one with a rock. They were not amused, and gave their rock the widest berth that their chains would allow. It dawned on us that rock was so unfamiliar to them that the poor animals feared that it might attack them. Peter and I laughed unsympathetically. Then, slowly, over the next half hour, sniffing intently, the bolder dogs crept towards their predator. Finally, with a swipe of a paw, they challenged it to battle. Gradually, they came to understand that rocks generally capitulate without a fight. After this, it was not long before calm was restored, and each rock was well used in place of a lamppost. By mid-February, the inadequacy of the dried whale meat pemmican diet showed, the dogs losing form rapidly and eating all faeces that came within range, the wheel dogs harnessed closest to a sledge receiving the greatest of this bounty while on the move. As with previously recounted cases of human affection for canines, Dr. Wilson took to crapping out in front of his favourites so they could enjoy the second-hand feast hot. Any bitch that whelped a pup immediately ate it if a neighbour didn't snatch it first. Indolent and shivering, the dogs were not faring well. The party cached their geological samples to ease the sledge load and turned for Mordheim on the 30th of March. Okay, repeat trigger warning. Drownings and heartbreak lie ahead. On the 23rd of February, Ekstrom deemed the first revived weasel ready for action and took it out for a test drive at 23.30 hours. John Gelbart, Leslie Quar and Stig Hulgren rode along. Rogstad, staying up late to take the Met Ovs, woke Yeva at 0100 to alert him a fog now shrouded the ice shelf and the weasel party had not yet returned. The radio operator proposed he and Lorentzen follow the weasel tracks on skis to check on them. Yeva, confident something mechanical went awry, agreed to Rogstad's precautionary proposal and sat up awaiting further developments. Two hours later, 
Rogstad returned with dire news. The weasel went over the shelf edge. The skiers followed the track to the departure point and could hear Stig Hulgren returning their calls into the white void. The photographer was adrift on an ice floe, his companions already drowned. Yeva woke all Mordheim and all hands turned to the difficult task of digging out one of the long buried dories. Six feet of thaw-crusted snow took five hours for the five men to penetrate enough to release the heavy boat. The rescue party, vomiting because of this sudden, protracted and intense exercise, but driven on by the desperate need to get on the water, placed the dory on two sledges and drew it down to the water's edge. Stieg Hulgren jogged about on his ice floe to keep warm, aided by strong sunlight as the fog lifted. Thankfully the wind didn't pick up, as the chill across his wet clothing would have killed him in short order, and even without wind assistance, his ice raft drifted out of the harbour. Already 500 yards offshore, John Yeaver managed to yell encouragement to him that help was on its way as the unfortunate photographer disappeared behind a scarp of the ice shelf. The dory faced a 13-foot drop from the ice edge to the sea surface. The weight of the seagoing boat left ashore as insurance against the Norsell not making it close enough to Mordheim for relief the following summer, ruled out a slow and careful lowering, so Yeaver instructed his team to give it a good shove and trust to the sledges to act as a crumple zone. The sledges splintered on the sea ice, taking the impact enough to leave the boat sound. Schumacher worked the oars in the rollocks, while Yeaver stood in the bow using another oar to smash a path through the sea ice. As I recounted experiencing at Peterman Island in episode 92, the sea ice rafted up in the small embayment, giving greater than 100% sea surface coverage, forcing Yeaver to repeatedly leave a layer after layer of ice from beneath the boat's bow. Progress toward the survivor ran slow. Holgren's stranding lasting 13 hours by the time the boat reached him and assured his safety. Back at the shoreline, the party abandoned the dory in the face of the 13-foot barrier. The rescuers rested, exhausted, while Holgren, fitted with dry clothes and full of super-sweet coffee, walked back to Mordheim, traumatised but physically sound. He recited the incident as follows. The fog came in quickly but lay so low over the ice shelf the weasel party could still see the sky clearly, offering a false sense of security that saw Ekstrom carry forward toward the airfield where John Gelbart wanted to collect some aluminium sheeting he needed. They found the stashed metal and turned toward the quay, confident of their bearings but unaware that several hundred yards of ice carved into the water in the preceding days. The vehicle reached the new edge and the dark sea showed through the fog. Ekstrom braked, but the slope didn't offer enough purchase to halt the weasel. Everyone jumped out as the weasel reached the tipping point, but no one found purchase on the ice, and the men followed their vehicle into the drink. Ekstrom and Gelbart were injured on the way down, and in spite of Holgren's assistance, couldn't hold onto the ice edge in the face of a current dragging them under it. Qua held out a little longer, but eventually lost strength calling out a farewell as he let go his hold and disappeared. Holgren swam offshore to an ice floe and climbed aboard it by using his sheath knife for purchase. 
Working from smaller to larger flows, he eventually gained enough ground to keep himself entirely clear of the water and to begin calling for help, feeling it unlikely anyone would miss the party until the six o'clock start of the Mordheim day. He wasn't sure he communicated with Rogstad and Lawrenson, wondering if he imagined the heartening calls indicating a rescue getting underway. But Yeva's appearance on the ice edge reassured him of survival. The deaths hit everyone extremely hard. Besides the personal shock of faces from dinner not turning up for subsequent meals, ever. Every member of the NBSAE held a lot of responsibility for their specialty. With little fat in the system and few jacks of all trades, the loss of labour and talent embodied in the three dead men left Mordheim badly understaffed. The recent war taught everyone involved that you carry on in spite of losses, but the remaining six base staff got on with their regular and new additional tasks because they had to. Yeva sent radio telegrams north and on the 25th managed to raise the R party to tell them the bad news, though this contact also afforded an opportunity to send north a much sought after reassurance that the field teams were okay. Meanwhile, as a glaciological party passed Mount Passat, Swithenbank and Wilson diverged to make a first ascent. To their surprise, they found Luxuriant, for Antarctica, lichen and moss growth. At the summit, Swithenbank took a round of angles for the survey board, and Wilson sat on the rocks to scribe the figures. While waiting for the next packet of data, he noticed movement nearby. Tiny mites, red and brown and less than a millimetre along their longest axis, trotted about in shaded areas. He collected a number of them for further examination, easing the annoyance of their companions waiting below and eager to hit the trail with this discovery of southern animal life. They sledged past advanced base and selected mountains 18 miles further south, the Borgen Range, as their focus of study. Swithenbank and Mellaby worked to the southwest of the range while Wilson and Shit sledged into the Rodberg Pass leading through it doubling the party's data accumulation and planning to regroup after a week. They spent a month studying the glaciers and moraines of the range, returning to the advanced base depot on March 11th. Robin awaited them there with a telegram from Mordheim outlining the deaths of Ekstrom, Qua and Gelbart two weeks earlier. The news, arriving so simply from so far away, seemed hard to process like a bad dream, but demanded a response. The glaciological party sent Mellaby North in company with Robin and enough dogs to see them through to help keep Mordheim ticking over after the loss of a third of its staff, before restocking their remaining sledge and returning to the Borgen range to take the second round of glacier position measurements necessary to determine the rate of flow within the ice streams, finding them very slow glaciers fed by very small volume snowfalls. The geological party, also known as the R party, also sleeping through the day and sledging through the cool night hours, reached advanced base at Pyramiden on the 6th of January. The geologists replenished their sledge and continued south toward the Borgen range, while the surveyors began laying a baseline and fixing its position with the theodolite for triangulating all subsequent measurements. Roots and Rees returned, rock laden as is the geologists want, on the 17th of January. On the 18th, 
the Norwegian C-5 circled the Pyramiden before landing on the nearby ice. Fries Bastard and Kjellberg arrived with mail and novel foods from the far north, including beef, potatoes and fish cakes. But they didn't stay long, their cooling engine and photographic schedule calling them airborne once more. Roots and Rees worked a circuit of nun attacks, while Raw and Robin established a survey station from which to make stereoscopic photographs of mountains too far away for the NBSAE to visit. Working southwest, they encountered the Penksoka Ice Stream, a vast and heavily crevassed glacier. They entered this and found it hard going, with many falls into gaping crevasse moors and whiteout conditions periodically rendering travel impossible due to the lack of depth perception in the all-white landscape. They pushed on into this treacherous terrain until the crevasses, by then simply large absences of ice, accounted for as much as 40% of the valley volume. They turned back, unable to measure the glacier's width or to determine anything about the geology framing its far shore. On March 11th, while examining volcanic dikes intruding through sedimentary layering, Reese caught a shard of rock in his eye. His hammer shattered the surface he sought to break up, and a glassy shard rocketed into his unprotected peeper at speed. The litho missile didn't lodge in the eye tissue, but rang its bell extremely hard. Reese immediately headed to camp and bedded down, waking with a comic book style black eye, the bruising running all around the socket and he was unable to distinguish anything other than dark and light areas with the injured eyeball. The party faced a hard decision. Heading back to Mordheim, a three-week prospect, might not get them to Dr. Wilson in time for any useful treatment of the injury. If the eye came good on its own in that time, they'd be too late in the season to return and continue their work. They returned to advanced base, at least, though Reese felt recovered enough to drive his own dog team at that point, though his injured eye remained sightless and its pupil deranged. Melaby and Robin had already departed for Mordheim by the time they reached Pyramiden. They continued working near advanced base through the remainder of March, but Reese's eye wasn't healing neatly. An infection began where the rock shard tore the cornea and began spreading quickly. Roots anaesthetized the organ and cauterized the infected surface with iodine. The procedure left Reese weakened for almost a week, but his sleep improved as the infection receded, and he soon felt ready to return to sledging. With Reese's condition apparently stable, the trio made another foray south from advanced base, affording surveying and geological extensions further east of the Borgen Range. The primer stove and their cameras began to act up after operating for such a long period in such harsh conditions. While cleaning and replacing parts kept the primers ticking along, albeit with decreasing efficiency and shorter spans between troublesome periods, they couldn't do much to improve the performance of the camera and had to hope the click sound it emitted when the user depressed the shutter button indicated a successful exposure, after which a series of violent concussions spurred the wind-on mechanism to overcome whatever grit and ice-based problems kept it from operating smoothly. The trio replenished their sledges at advanced base for the last time that season and began sledging north on the 29th of April. Their five months in the field provided the NBSAE with its highest, 8,000 feet above mean sea level, and the geologists with their furthest south, 
72 degrees 57 minutes south, survey stations. Deteriorating conditions forced them to switch to relayed loads, and day sledging replaced night movements as autumn came on fast. Quoting Roots Thereafter, one day was much like another. We would break camp, or if we were relaying, just leave it, in semi-darkness, and push and puff behind the sledges, while the dogs pulled and puffed in front, and a deep wash of saffron and rose would spread over the northern sky. Then the few long bars of dark grey cloud would suddenly explode into magenta. The horizon would become golden, or a piercing sodium yellow, and a thin, flattened crescent of heatless fire would roll smoothly over the edge of the purple-shadowed ice mantle. All in a minute, a drab little team, panting and straining in the twilight, would be transformed into a gilded procession, with upcurled plumy tails and rippling shoulder ruffs glittering and iridescent, still panting and straining, but blowing clouds of orpiment and matched step by step by enormous and grotesque blue shadows. The sunrise would continuous blaze of colour until noon. After that, we called it sunset. End quote. By mid-May, their daily distances grew worryingly short and the dogs were showing the strain. Finding the trail markers became difficult as autumnal snow drifted the landscape in. Quoting Roots, writing of himself in the third person. One of Roots' dogs, Diesel, had several times been used as an alternate leader to Rachel and had shown a propensity for following trails. He was moved to leader's position and Roots grasped his trace-like rope like a leash, with Rachel and the rest of the team behind. With Diesel keeping his nose to the snow like a bloodhound and Roots ski-drawing, we sped along through the murk at a fast trot. Roots only glimpsed or felt the trail beneath his feet at intervals, and he wondered if the other men would approve of his relying on a dog to find the way. However, the camp was soon reached, and a vote of thanks tended to Diesel for leading us out of what might have been a nasty situation. End quote. Dead reckoning through the gloom by a luminous deadbeat compass and reference to the sledge meter became the mode. Roar, proving very good at holding a course, thankfully, turning up the trail marker flags and cans, even in the dimmest of light. On the 27th, the geological and topographical party met their relief coming the other way in the form of Shit, Mellaby and Wilson. The R party dogs, previously subdued and pulling doggedly but slowly, charged after the fresh team that came out to find them, awoken by the sense of companions long unseen and thoughts of Mordheim luxuries, like not being harnessed to a sledge for days on end on an unvarying diet of dog pemmican. The R party returned to Mordheim on the 30th of May. Meanwhile, at Mordheim, without Ekstrom to keep the engines maintained, Yeva ordered the generators only operate in the evening during the daily radio sonde tracking. Rogstad assembled the backup generator system and looked after all the genset array as best he could for the remainder of the NBSAE. All battery charging needed to switch to the wind generator system Qua just finished rigging shortly before the accident. Lighting switched from electrical to flame based, with storm lanterns and primus lamps coming out of storage and into use. Yeva sent word south calling for Mellaby and Robin to return to Mordheim to begin overhauling the remaining weasels and getting them up to working order, 
leaving Shit and Raw shorthanded for their present fieldwork in order that the second field season might still go ahead. It turns out Yeva's order arrived after Melaby and Robin already set out north, the field parties having reached the same conclusion as those at Mordheim and taken action off their own bat, an indication of a coherent and mutually supporting team of a kind few expeditions can boast. The glaciological team returned to Mordheim on the 5th of April, bringing the news of Reese's eye injury and of Wilson's discovery of live animals on Passat Ridge. The good doctor's good mood dipped when he realised the blood sample serums he ordered from Sweden remained topside and froze, ruining the prospect of a second year of data for his human adaptation study. He put his skills to task trying and failing to pull a decayed wisdom tooth from Shit's jaw. Thwarted by the obstinate molar, which troubled the glaciologist long and hard out on the trail, he left it in place and filled it. Good dentistry is one of the reasons modern humans live as long as they do, and the absence of dedicated dentists on small research stations remains an Antarctic bugbear to this day. Doctors take short courses in dealing with the problems most likely to arise during their isolation, but trying to fit an entire degree on oral medicine into a few weeks leaves a lot to be desired. Late April, Swithenbank led Holgren on his first trail outing, making a round of the deposition ablation stakes and surveying for any movement in Seine and scouting for a new boring site. In mid-May, Shit and Swithenbank revived the dormant boring machine and Robin and Rogstad got the second diesel generator online while Melody thawed out a weasel and coaxed it into the workshop for its overhaul. A mechanical red letter day, Jaeger notes in his book. Robin and Melody swapped out the weasel's engine and gearbox entire, as the worn-out unit lay beyond their mechanical skills to bring back to a field-ready state. By May 20th, Yeva ordered Shit, Melody and Wilson begin preparations for a relief trail party, having heard nothing from the three remaining members of the R-Party Geology and Survey Group since February. With the radios already demonstrated as unreliable, the long trip must be taking its toll on the dogs regardless, and Alan Reese's eye injury still concerned the doctor. One of the weasels was working, but couldn't be relied on as much as dogs, so the trio hit the trail on the 24th, with two sledge teams and enough stores to last them three weeks, to be supplemented at the depots. Yeva gave firm instructions that they turn back after two weeks, even if they hadn't made contact with the R-Party. Crookweather prevented Shit's team making rapid progress, and by the time they got moving on the 29th of May, the R-Party met them coming the other way. Both teams returned to Mordheim on the 30th, the geologists and surveyors having been out in the south for five and a half months. The dogs were totally flogged out, and Reese's eye infection returned. By mid-June, Dr Wilson deemed it in such a bad state that they risked the infection damaging sight in the uninjured eye and began preparing for an extraction. As with dentistry, he wasn't an eye specialist and required coaching over the radio and extensive study of his medical encyclopedia to understand what the looming surgery involved. His former teacher at Lund University, Professor Sven Larsen, was an eye specialist and provided the shortwave radio coaching. 
Dr. Wilson made a set of surgical instruments fit to purpose and trained in Lilliquist, Hullegren, Roots and Rogstad to act as surgical assistants. Mellaby made an operating table from packing crates and fashioned an oxygen mask from weasel spares. The operation went ahead on the 21st of July and here's Dr. Wilson's account of same. Quote, at two o'clock, I put on my gloves and with my assistance began the sterilization. Three quarters of an hour later, Rhys made an impressive entry, lay down on the operating table and broke the silence with this remark. Boys, I'm scared stiff inside. I began at once with the anesthetic and when the patient had lost consciousness, Holgren took over, whereupon I changed gloves and made the necessary preparations around the injured eye. While I waited for the moment to start the operation, I rehearsed to myself in silence all the details on which I had been instructed, and wondered greatly whether I should find the right spot for severing the optic nerve. Slowly but surely, Holgren submerged our patient in ever deeper sleep. My operating knife made the first incision in the pupil. Roots assisted with swift and cool precision, shit passed the instruments with absolute assurance, Rogstad followed the blood pressure. Gostoliloquist kept the records and took the pulse. Holgren maintained the anaesthesia always at the right level. The tension was tremendous. Suddenly I found the first eye muscle which I retracted by means of my homemade instrument. Directly after I had severed all the eye muscles. The most dramatic moment came when I was looking for the optic nerve. The only audible sound was the ticking of the film camera in the background. After a while, I was able to sever the nerve and take out the eyeball, then tie up the muscles and close the wound. After two hours and 40 minutes of tension, the operation had been successfully carried through. We congratulated one another, but from my point of view, the most momentous issue lay ahead, how things were going to turn out during the next few hours. A sudden quickening of pulse in the night, we were able to steady with an injection. The day after, a tired but happy patient received the whole base at his bedside. His left eye was now safe. End quote. Reese and Root spent a lot of the second long dark cooking up a new recipe comprising margarine, oatmeal and whale steaks to replace the experimental and unsatisfactory powdered whale pemmican. Volta shit solved the problem of the increasingly stale air as Mordheim sank deeper beneath the snows by making large air cones to fit to the ventilators. The Venturi effect of wind moving across the uppermost aperture sucked air from within the base, increasing the fuel burden on the heaters but easing concerns regarding carbon monoxide. The dogs showed signs of mange toward the end of winter and concerns about another round of illness-related deaths and the associated dent to trail plans abated when Yeva ordered their diet shift from whale meat to seal carcasses. The whale meat from the second Norsell visit lay atop the seal stash, making for easier collection, but it lacked the skin and blubber and offal, and Yeva figured the dogs might be missing out on important nutrients. The mange cleared up after a couple of weeks on the new diet. The second winter proved more fierce than the first, regular blizzards hammering at what little of Mordheim still peaked above the snow and preventing all but the most pressing outdoor activities. 
Musical concerts replaced Ludo Championships, again driven largely by the recreational mean of the cook. Lawrenson played the recorder and regularly spurred spontaneous concerts with Rogstad on accordion and whoever happened by on gut bucket bass. His efforts in the galley outshone his competent but workmanlike predecessor and he overrated the food that winter the best he ever experienced in any of his high latitude sojourns. Among the treats the Norsell delivered the previous summer, the Afton Posten and Svenska Dug Vedette newspapers each sent a year's worth of back issues to catch the NBSAE up on the events occurring in their absence. By mutual agreement, the papers came out in date order on the corresponding anniversary to ensure the novelty didn't wear off. Another novelty, a pair of 120cc Husqvarna Model 27 motorcycles with additional ski attachments. Charles Swithenbank assembled one and used it throughout the winter for getting about the local ice shelf, becoming the first motorcyclist on the Antarctic continent. Even in the coldest weather, the Swedish built machine turned over with the first kick, something the motorcycle industry of his homeland never achieved in the years remaining to it. The second motorcycle he modified into an emergency generator to use out on the trail, stripping it down to the frame and mounting a spare weasel dynamo set between the rear forks which connected to the engine with a belt drive. Here's his take on the stake measurement program from that period. Quote, the stake survey was a repetition of all that I had done the previous year, with the same problems of handling frozen instruments with numbed fingers in inky darkness. Often as I peered through the theodolite telescope, refraction made the inverted image of the stakes dance wildly until my condensing breath blotted out the picture altogether. Yet all the time I knew what a privilege it was to be here. Sometimes visions, totally out of context, flashed through my mind of milling crowds back home, imprisoned as it were, in cities, of their daily grind back and forth to satanic mills, of great wars and petty conflicts. Not that I harboured any contempt for my fellow men, rather it was a sadness that they could not share perhaps could not even comprehend my elation in this environment. I was alone with the firmament, yet they might not even once in a lifetime find an opportunity to stand in awe, pray to the heavens, and cast their eyes up to the eternal stars. Dreaming of the sublime in this environment was a paradox too lovely to ignore and too profound to explain, though I was far from the first to be moved by it. End quote. Working throughout the winter months, Robin and Melody got both weasels working well enough to offer some confidence of their reliability on the trail. While Yeva praised this extraordinary effort of the two amateur mechanics, he also revised the second year's excursion plans to rely less heavily on mechanical aid. Schitt and Swithenbank, aided by Hulgren, drilled to a depth of 330 feet offering the first empirical insights into the local transition from snow to ice through compaction. Previous hypotheses about this key glacial process received support and falsification in light of the microscopic analyses to which they put their samples. While not especially deep compared to the coring work carried out subsequently, the NBSAE investment of time and energy into placing glaciologists and their equipment on site 
played out as a boon to the expedition's scientific output and set the scene for a lot of Antarctic projects that followed. The first trail party of the new sledging season departed Mordheim on the 27th of September, comprising Shit, Roots and Reese, checking the trail for the weasels to follow, hoping to find a better route around crevasse fields identified the preceding season. Shit and Reese pushed on south while Roots backtracked to pilot the weasel team safely to the eastern ice shelf by this new route. They covered new ground en route back to the Rogstad Pass, Reese geologising and Shit following up the previous season's deposition ablation measurements and glacial movement modelling. The party spent two months on the trail covering 680 miles. The weather, while kind for the most part, pinned them down for several blizzards one keeping them in their tent for four days. Mellaby, Robin and Swithenbank took the weasels on a depot trek on the 30th of September, placing three tonnes of stores and equipment for subsequent dog teams and 600 litres of avgas for the Swedish air unit slated to arrive with the Norsells next visit, 150 miles inland. This exceeded Yeva's stated goal by 25 miles and fulfilled Robin's side of a contract that would see his seismic program fully realised, with both Weasels, a dog team, Swithenbank and Melody under his leadership through the summer. The Weasels gave plenty of trouble, as might be expected after their hard life. Condensation in the fuel tanks froze and blocked the feeder lines. Swithenbank's engine caught fire. Bogey wheels broke and gearboxes required overhaul, all repairs being carried out in ambient conditions out in the open. They collected all depot geological samples from the previous summer on their return leg. To make their next trail outing more efficient, Robin, Swithenbank and Mellaby fitted out a caravan on one of the weasel sledges, nulling the need to erect a tent each time they stopped for a night. I can't find any pictures, but I imagine the interior looking a lot like that of Wallace's rocket ship in A Grand Day Out. The team departed Mordheim on the 18th of October in company with Ove Wilson, driving Mellaby's reserve dog team. They aimed to make seismic stations every six miles all the way out to advanced base, returning a profile transect of ice depth and either the water depth beneath that or some insight into the underlying rock strata. While cramped, the caboose proved a valuable time and effort saver, requiring only a few stabilising guys pegged out around it to make a stable, pre-warmed home at each camp. Their travel ran smooth and their seismic work, while time consuming, returned sound data without the TNT used to ping the landscape taking anyone's fingers or life. Melaby's weasel broke down on the 16th of November but as the team already planned on shifting all the remaining stores to one vehicle to save fuel, they abandoned it rather than continue repairing it. They stripped off all components that might serve as spares for the remaining unit and carried on. On the 30th of November, Robin sent the following message north. Quote, to Yeva, have raised the Norwegian flag and toasted the kings of Norway, Britain and Sweden in position 74.3 degrees south, 00.8 degrees east, stop. Commence return tomorrow, stop. 
Weasel and dogs in good condition. Robin. End quote. This site, 620 nautical miles from Mordheim, marked the NBSAE furthest south. Meanwhile, Rogstad used Swithin Bank's motorcycle to visit the deposition ablation stakes in the glaciologist's absence to continue the time series measurements. Meanwhile, meanwhile, Captain Guttorm Jakobsen once more stepped up to pilot the Norsell south, and his brother Torgil took on engineering duties again, and John Snarby reprised his role as ship's cook, looking forward to seeing Mordheim and his Antarctic colleagues once more. This time, the ship carried a Swedish Air Force contingent, led by Captain Reinhold von Essen, returning south after learning a lot during his observer role the previous season. The Svenska Fleetvatnet made a Beach 18, the same airframe as Harry Darlington selected for the rare, available for aerial surveying, and a Saab Safir mounted on floats for scouting flights. A second Air Force officer, Lieutenant Nissen, sailed as von Essen's assistant pilot. Vidaro Airlines airman and cartographer, Helga Skapel, joined the Swedish aviation contingent as survey photographer. The Swedes also shipped the Weasel, knowing the existing units were already on task and showing the strain of their two years of hard yards. Royal Navy Lieutenants D.K. Blair and R.G. Higgins sailed to represent the British Committee's interests. The ship departed Göteborg, crossing the equator on the 19th of November. Volta ship and Dr. Wilson returned to Mordheim on the 27th of November. Ove Wilson collected more of his tiny critters from the mountains and made a study of them under the microscope. Lunaliquist completed a radiation penetration experimental series under varying depths and densities of snow cover, yodeling with delight as the absorption spectrum curves resolved to equilibrium, because that's the sort of thing a scientist finds satisfying. Meanwhile, Robin, Melby and Swithenbank made good time by following stakes and previous tracks, stopping only to fire seismic shots where none previously mapped the ice below. The warm conditions made drilling the hole for the charge difficult, as the softening snow regularly jammed the core barrel. They poured petrol in the first few metres of the hole and lit it to melt and harden the upper walls, though this process cost Swithenbank when he poured a second dose down a hole he assumed already burnt out leading to an explosive column of flame that saw him fall away from the shot hole, spilling burning petrol on his arm. Another flammable near-miss for the NBSAE. The routine became automatic, which nearly cost Swithin Bank his hands. Working through another seismic station on cruise control, he attached a detonator into a stick of dynamite when he noticed the bare wire ends brushing across the top of the spare weasel battery normally carried on another sledge. He cursed himself for becoming so dulled as to not notice the danger, and I find myself wondering how many stories like this we don't know, because the person who might tell them died horribly from exactly the same sort of robotic mistake. Meanwhile, on December 12th, Rogstad received a message from Captain Jakobsen the Norsell hove to in the face of ice at 51 degrees south and faced 900 miles of ice punching if conditions didn't clear up. 
No ship ever pushed so far south so early in the season, and Guthlum Jakobsen was playing it careful. Conditions did clear, and the Norsell crossed the Antarctic Circle just five days later, and reached the Norsell Bay shore on the 22nd of December. A spectacular result in itself, let alone that it afforded the local residents Christmas dinner in the ship's saloon. Yeva and co raised the flags of their three nations for the first and only time to greet their relief, and harnessed shit's dogs to sledge everyone quayside. Von Essen, Nissen and Scarpel immediately began making plans for their flights, aided by the return from the trail of Rohr and Halgren, with the latest news about plateau conditions, fuel caches and likely fruitful avenues of aerial exploration. The Beach 18 took off from the sea ice and flew up to the ice runway, while the Swedish weasel towed up the fuel drums necessary to send it on its first leg southward. A test flight over the ice barrier boded well for the long-range flights. The Swedish weasel conked out, so Shit put his dog team to task bringing up the fuel drums in a slower but more reliable mode. The Norsell's arrival coincided with elevated temperatures and more time already pushed hard during its two winters, leaked torrents. These streams froze again on the corridor floors and made transits between structures hazardously slippery. More shoring up held the sagging roof structures in place, but two winters appeared the structural limit for buildings of Mordheim's nature on an ice shelf. The residents saved kerosene fuel for a possible third winter should the Norsell not arrive by running the stoves on diesel, but the resulting soot lowered the albedo of the surrounding snow, increasing the melt and making the indoor rain all the heavier. Mordheim served the NBSAE well, but wouldn't mothball for future use. Bright sunshine saw the black marking powder Captain Essen used to delineate the boundaries of the airfield melt into the snow surface, giving the pilots a two-foot deep ditch around the runway to keep them focused during their takeoff run and landing rollout. In a flying program spanning 47 hours, the Beach 18 photographed everywhere the ground parties worked and extended out to cover every geographic feature between 16 degrees west and 3 degrees east that its range allowed, and the coast from the prime meridian to 21 degrees west. On the 3rd of January, Yeva sent a message to the field parties, by then regrouped, to return to Mordheim immediately. At the same time, on Nils Rohr's suggestion, the Norsell sailed south, taking advantage of the open water stretching beyond the visible horizon to make soundings and to radar survey the coastline. Rohr sailed to supervise the survey carried out by Lieutenants Blair and Higgins, while Captain Jakobsen navigated and sang the praises of remote sensing apparatus, and that he didn't have to bash ice for it to serve the expedition in extending the cartographic outcomes to such a large extent as the 4A did. The excursion could have made further south, but the Norsell threw a shoe. An overheated bearing seized and damaged the associated crankshaft. The ship lay dead in the water while the engineers fitted spares and turned north once the screw started turning once again. Where I worked to a rule of three while diving, Captain Jakobsen worked to a rule of two as an ice pilot, and I respect that a lot. The remaining field personnel reached Mordheim on the 6th of January, and the pace of packing in the worn-out base reached fever pitch. Only the Swedish aviators continued to look southward, 
flying a survey program to make best use of the pre-existing ground truthing offered by two Austral summers worth of trail work. All up, the Beach 18 overflew 100,000 square miles of territory. On the 9th of January, the Norcell put out to sea to make more permanent repairs to the engine, with less risk of being caught dead in the water by moving ice than Norcell Bay offered. An iceberg, previously thought grounded, bore down on the ship while its engine lay in bits. Captain Jakobsen ordered one of the ship's motorboats launched, and the tiny launch towed its mothership out of danger by a narrow margin. Once the engineers reassembled their charge and saw it in good fettle, the Norsell sailed north along the coast to give the stretch between Norsell Bay and Cap Norvegia the same survey treatment with the sounder and radar. On the 12th, Volta Schutt performed the melancholy duty of shooting all but four of the dogs. Authorities in Norway and Sweden felt concern over the infection that plagued the pack on the voyage south and demanded none return. The British equivalents wanted four kept for examination by vets and parasitologists, so this reprieve was more about preserving the dogs in a form that didn't take up space in the ship's freezer than it was sentimental. Shit found it a heartbreaking task, necessity notwithstanding. He ensured the dogs enjoyed a good feed as he euthanised them, and that each corpse lay well buried before anyone brought the next condemnee out for their last meal. Radio Mortheim shut up shop with a final transmission to King Harkon VII. During the final evening on site, Rogstad organised what might stand as Antarctica's first ski jumping competition. The aircraft and ship's boring machine went aboard the Norsell. The ship threw off lines on the 15th of January and headed north. Six volumes of scientific results arose from the expedition, some of the papers going on to earn Swithenbank, Lillequist, Robin, Schitt and Wilson their PhDs. The NBSAE pushed forward our understanding of the role Antarctica plays in weather patterns affecting the rest of the planet. It took some time for the realisation to dawn on anyone, but the geological data the NBSAE collected supported a past link between Droning Maudland and Southern Africa. The glaciological work established data supporting a link between Antarctic glaciers and sea levels, something we take for granted today, but remember that in the era under examination, plate tectonics only just gained traction with the scientific community. The NBSAE made the first measurements of the high Antarctic plateau, ending any speculation that the continent comprised a thin veneer of ice over a massive continental mass, which wasn't a hugely popular hypothesis at the time, but which hadn't been as completely falsified as Rohr and Robin left it. Walter Schitt and Charles Swithenbank, the first dedicated glaciologists to work in Antarctica, identified annual layers in the snow pits they dug daily at trail campsites, and mapped the transition from fallen snowflakes to low friction oriented crystal layering in glacial cross-section cores. The mites Dr Wilson found atop the Passat Nunatak later, several years later, received taxonomic examination determining them as previously unseen species in a previously unseen genus, Mordheimia wilsoni. NBSAE members received requests for advanced copies of their work as nations began formulating their ambitions for the International Geophysical Year, the NBSAE representing the most up-to-date application of technology and methods at the largest scale in Antarctic history to that date. 
Yeva estimated the mental and physical strain of his two years in Antarctica exceeded anything he taxed his body and mind with in the Arctic by 50%, though he attributed some of the difference to his age at the start of the project, which is my present age. Damn it. Yeva mapped his leadership philosophy out in the early chapters of The White Desert, as follows. Quote, My experience is that an expedition leader will hold his own provided he does not fish for popularity. It will be his plain and very unpleasant duty to act as the scapegoat for criticism, and possibly ill-feeling, in order to obviate disputes among the members of the party. It is better for the whole band to be unanimous in their fury against the leader than to form cliques quarrelling among themselves. This is the leader's essential privilege, and the least he should be ready to face as an obligation. End quote. He also cited the American Army Manual of Land Warfare, Tenet, that a superior officer may assign a task, but he must never interfere with the details where the execution of the order is concerned, which seems another hard-won lesson Yeva replied well in his overall high-latitudes leadership mode. Yeva's mode seems pretty close to a military mould without the same degree of outright power. Given how well Yeva led, I'd rate his words as well worth heeding for anyone seeking to lead in fraught circumstances. I can certainly think of multiple situations in my past where a leader, more interested in leading and less concerned with others' perceptions of them, might have overseen fewer maimings than their time in charge led to. In two years, with as many as 15 men on station, Yeva only recorded two quarrels, and these only ran to mild disagreements. He attributed a lot of this to the international flavour of the expedition, and there's likely something in that, but I think a lot of the equanimity, or otherwise, of a team comes down to the mode of the leader, and there's few I've recounted in the series would match the calibre of John Yeva. John Rymill, perhaps. Only a low N value, but I'll keep accumulating data and see if it's a John thing. The NBSAE constituted the first international scientific collaborative project in Antarctica. Its success ensured it wouldn't be the last. With 50 years of hindsight and a lot more time in Antarctica to dwell upon, Swithenbank seems to hit the nail on the head in the epilogue of Toehold on Antarctica. Quote, At Mordheim, each one of us, to the best of our ability, leaned over backwards to suppress our national prejudices and preconceptions. That, surely, was the key to our success. We made allowance for the differences in cultural background, whereas on a national expedition, it is all too easy to assume that men brought up in the same culture should think alike. Finding that this is not so can lead to conflict. I do not recall a single occasion on which the senior man from each country, Yeva, Shit or Robin, convened a meeting of his own countrymen to discuss a national policy. It probably helped that the meteorology program involved a Norwegian and a Swede, the glaciology program had Swedish, British and Australian participants, and the geology survey program had Canadian, British and Norwegian members. We knew that any alignment based on nationality would be disruptive, and that the success or failure of the expedition would be judged by its scientific results. In 1952, the Australian government bought the two RAF Osters for use in the RAAF Antarctic flight, more of which are not. Greetings this episode to Barrick. A former student and my former landlord's grandson 
from back in the day I lived in Mount Monganui. Barrack remains a solid source of marine-themed inspiration and a reassuring marker that my time in tertiary education wasn't wasted. It was a privilege to teach, and while it wasn't always a pleasure, enough students of Barrack's calibre passed through my classes to make the three years I spent at the chalkboard it was actually a whiteboard because I'm old but I'm not that old, an overall positive in my life. Take care and appreciate your coffee, and furthermore I consider that Carthage must be destroyed and that Hadley Mearsham is best avoided.